Whichever car you own or are considering buying, one thing is certain. The engine is going to have either a timing chain or a timing belt. Is one of these technologies superior? And is this something about which you should give a proverbial number two? I'm John Logan from AutoExpert.com.au and I get new cars cheap. Belt or chain, I don't care. Australia only though, website, card. Now, do me a favour, okay? Mightier than the frickin' sword. Grab one. Write down on a piece of paper for me right now which one you think is superior. People tend to have such definite views on this, so write it down, dude. Which one's better? Belt or chain? Now, if you wrote belt, you're wrong. If you wrote chain, you're also wrong. We'll dig down into that in just a sec. This video is brought to you by Manscaped, which is of course a driving force behind the much needed revolution in men's grooming. You're looking at the ultimate grooming kit for the modern man. It's everything you need for a cheeky trim or a close shave anywhere from head to toe. It's the Manscaped Platinum Package 4.0 Grooming Kit because success starts in the shower. Manscaped Body Wash and 2-in-1 Shampoo and Conditioner. This stuff is going to slash your shower time in half. Next, slap on a little of this aluminium-free stick deodorant and personal favourite, Manscaped even has deodorant specifically formulated for balls. It's called Crop Preserver, and I'd suggest work or play, your crop deserves preservation. This bag now, it's called the Shed, and its specialised power tools include the sleek Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer and the Weed Whacker nose and ear hair trimmer. Both are waterproof, they're cordless, and they feature skin-safe technology, which reduces nicks and cuts. That's not hype, incidentally. I do my dome and my beard, etc. A couple of times a week with a lawnmower 4.0, and I am yet to break the skin. And it's easy to use, dude. A politician could do this. With the Peak Hygiene Plan, you can even get all of your Manscaped product replenishments delivered straight to your door. That is super convenient. Manscaped is also laying on the freebies this month. The Shed Luxury Travel Bag to keep all the tools together and a free pair of awesome Manscaped anti-chafing boxer briefs. Just go to manscaped.com slash autoexpert today. You'll get 20% off plus free international shipping and two free gifts when you use the promo code AEJC at checkout. That's 20% off plus free shipping and two free gifts with promo code AEJC at manscaped.com slash autoexpert. Your balls will thank you. Not a week goes past here in the palatial fat cave, just me and the former cheerleaders minding our own beeswax, when we don't get inquiries such as this. I'll just read it off to you in a sec, but this is not really just about belts and chains or automotive engineering. It's about flawed perceptions based on information that might have been accurate 40 years ago, but the goalposts have moved. And What this does is you lock your perceptions in, they're flawed, it leads to bad decisions about 
what to do next. In this case, in the context of which engines you should consider for your next car and whether you should ride a car off because it has this kind of timing drive system or that kind, right? So with that in mind, you're going to learn something about how engineering really works, even if you don't give a tinker's cuss about belts versus chains. So here it is. I have a quandary with which I would like your view. I currently own a 2015 Hyundai i30 diesel wagon now done 145,000 kilometres. That's three and a half laps of the planet. So let's reanimate Magellan and see what he thinks about that. My mechanic has said to me on my latest trip for my biannual service that my timing chain requires replacement. Always big, been a big fan of chain over belt. This is the wrong way to look at engineering design, dude. We'll get to that central overarching thesis. I have owned three cars prior to this that have all had timing chains. This is probably an automotive ancient history lesson, therefore something of an archeological dig dating back to the 80s, possibly even the 70s. This is highly significant also. All cars have successfully gone well past 200,000 Ks without any mention of timing chain replacement cost to replace $1,850. Currently seeking second opinion. Not necessary, dude. Pretty easy to diagnose. If your timing chain is cactus, you need to uncactus it. And that's not an unreasonable fee. Your opinion would be appreciated. People do not all that often appreciate my opinion, dude, because I do tend to prioritise the facts over appeasement. There's more than enough appeasement out there if you want to look for that. I do detest it. I fundamentally detest it when people make these blanket statements like, always been a big fan of chain over belt. The reality is that there are excellent examples of timing chains in service and excellent examples of timing belts in service and there are properly shit examples of both as well. So this is probably the wrong sort of binary proposition prism through which to view the selection of a new car based on, you know, how the camshafts are driven by the crank. I, I think that's fundamentally insane to do it that way, and I, I'm not suggesting that people go out and attempt to be fundamentally insane. I just think they make decisions without having a broad foundation of you know reliable knowledge, and that's what this video is kind of about. They tend to lock these bullshit preferences in at some point in time, possibly 40 years ago or something, when they were teenagers, late teenagers, just got your license, listen to what grandpappy used to say, and then they're kind of locked in, you know, like the, the epoxy has gone off and it's going to be the same shape for the next 40 years, despite whatever happens in the intervening time, which frankly, is insane. And there has been a lot of things that have happened in the intervening time in the case of driving camshafts with the crank. And engineering a car, right, it's this incredible balancing act. Like, buyers prefer this. Every car buyer I know wants a car that consumes no fuel, goes really, really well, never needs servicing, doesn't have any emissions, and never wears out. Okay, <laughs> and 
the car industry tries to do that. They try to deliver the impossible and they get much better at it. They get closer to the goalposts over time. But several of these objectives conflict, don't they? Like you want a car that never needs servicing but doesn't wear out. So you can come up with better oil technology and you can extend the service intervals. But if you extend the service intervals longer and longer and longer, ultimately you're going to compromise the life of those components. So all of these things are a balancing act and cars have improved dramatically in terms of their ambient reliability since, for example, the 70s or 80s. That's just an objective fact and anyone who thinks they're less reliable now is a nut. They're not. Okay, they're just not. They're just the, the best cars you will ever see are the cars that are available today. And in 20 years' time, that statement will be as true as it was today or 20 years before today. Okay, so just to prove this to you, let's look at one particular example that I dredged up this morning. Okay, in 1990, which was 33 ish years ago, a Corolla, like this is like the Big Mac test with cars, right? A Corolla had a 1.6 litre petrol engine that was fed by a carburetor. It made 66 kilowatts. It had a six month service interval. The specific power output was 41 kilowatts per litre and it weighed just five kilos shy of a metric tonne, okay? Fast forward to today. Today's Corolla, has a two litre petrol injected engine, now doing apples for apples, so not considering the hybrid because it wouldn't be a fair comparison. It makes 126 kilowatts, which is nearly double the power. It's fuel injected, obviously. So it's got a 12 month service interval, which is double the time of the service interval. And it makes 63 kilowatts per litre, which is roughly 50% more on the specific power output. So each one of those combustion events in the cylinder per unit of displacement is 50% more powerful, right? And the thing weighs 1,420 kilos, which is roughly 40% more mass. And obviously the Corolla of 33 years ago does not have anything like the same equipment level, rigidity, safety performance, crash performance, infotainment features, just general comfort and convenience features, whatever. It's also much smaller. So the Corolla has grown substantially in time. And that means... <coughs> The operational environment for the engine is just so different. The, these cars all exist on, the, on a continuum of Corollas dating back to whatever it was, 1960-something. <clears throat> but they couldn't be more different. They're vastly different cars, and that means for the engines doing the driving, there are vastly different operational parameters as well. And this is true of every automotive scenario. So if you lock your perception in, in 1952, you're missing the point, right? So let's just think about when the perception about chains and their superiority and their longevity really was catalyzed. And that would be with overhead valve engines, like pushrod engines. And I've owned two Holden pushrod V8s in my youth, and they were both you know, overhead valve engines. It means the crankshaft was kind of here and the camshaft was kind of here and that had a very short 
timing chain that never wore out. And the biggest challenge for the design there was the sprockets almost touched one another. The sprocket on the single camshaft almost touched the sprocket on the crank and the chain was the, thus the shortest possible chain to achieve the timing in the circumstances, right? And those chains did not work particularly hard. The specific power outputs were not particularly high through the context of today and chains got a really good rap. And then, of course, engine technology changed and we started to have overhead cam engines and double overhead cam engines and it's a real problem to run a chain through a double overhead cam engine which is why of course belts got to run and look there's a couple of yes on the full too that doesn't happen very often usually go for the rebound the problem with chains is that they weigh more and they've got inertia and there's friction and they make noise and they stretch okay and the problem with belts is that they don't do any of that stuff but they break and they don't last as long there are plenty of chains that do last until the end of the engine life however imperfectly because they might stretch but chains are kind of really hard to route from the crank over two sprockets to drive double overhead cams and keep the slack out of the system with a tensioner and there are parasitic losses that go with the inertia of a chain because if you've got to speed an engine up from idle to 6000 rpm then you have to overcome the inertia of its various components including the chain if you use a belt it's a really good engineering fix to reducing the overall rotational parasitic kind of losses inertial losses when it comes to speeding up the engine so buyers also want fuel economy and a belt is a really good way of delivering that and the other thing about chains, right, is which flavour of chain is the superior one again? Because I'm not getting it. I'm aware of three specifically different flavours of timing chain. There's a basic single row roller chain, okay? And then there's a double row roller chain. And roller chains are basically exemplified by there's sprockets, okay? And the pin that holds the chain together does not touch the sprockets because there's a roller on the outside of the pins. And there's either one or two rows of these rollers, single row, double row. And then there's the other kind of chain system, which is quieter but not kind of as frictionless as the roller chain system. And that's the so-called silent chain, which is more or less driven by toothed uh, barrels, not unlike the drive system for a toothed belt, and the insides of the main parts of the chain conform to the teeth at each end on the ends of the crank and the cams, and there's no rollers, right? There's just pins and plates, and the insides of the plates drive teeth to drive the cams from the crank, okay? But they're not perfect either because they're not as frictionless and, you know, wear is a factor. And the other thing to remember is that even if a chain doesn't wear out it stretches and if it stretches it changes the valve timing and that's going to mean the engine's going to run like a dog or not be as fuel efficient or just not be as optimized over time and you have to think about it like this if there's 40 links in a timing chain then let's say for shits and giggles that there's a total of one thousandth of an inch of wear introduced into a timing chain at a particular point in time right 
times 40 links equals 40 thousandths of an inch, which coincidentally is one millimeter, more or less, actually 39 thou for uh, a millimeter, but who's counting? This is quite significant when you're talking about precise angles and the engine has to know where the cams are to get the delivery of fuel right with fuel injection systems and all things of this nature, right? So the wear in a chain, even if it doesn't destroy the engine by braking, is significant. And there's plenty of engines out there with chains, incidentally, where the stretch in a chain, like the wear, is so significant that in extremis, in some extreme examples of engine operation, high RPM going from driving to high sort of off-throttle loads, what you can get is sort of backlash in the stretch in the chain system, and it can actually jump a tooth, which is time to replace the chain, dude, because uh, there's no real coming back from that without a service intervention, right? <sighs> roller chains, like a uh, single roller and double roller, there's less friction, but they're noisier and they're susceptible to contaminants in the oil, right? They're really susceptible because there's low clearance between the pin and the roller. And this is a direct conflict in between buyer expectation, which is you can go a year without servicing your car and what the chain needs, which is clean oil, okay? So if you do a lot of short distance driving, it increases the contamination in the oil. And by definition, this increases the contaminants that get into the gap in between the pin in the chain and the roller in the chain. That's bad because it increases the wear rate, particularly if they're carbon type contaminants. Carbon type contaminants tend to be a little bit gritty and it's all bad. And yet, if a manufacturer said, no, we want the chain to last longer, we're going to change the service interval from 12 months to six months. They would just have their feet held to the fire by journalists and owners and buyers would run away from them and go to every other manufacturer that demands a 12-month interval because no one wants to go back to the dealer every six months anymore. We've moved on from that. So this is a feedback effect of that, trying to keep you happy, right? The other thing about timing chains and engines generally is that they do this unbelievable job. People say it's only done 145,000 Ks. Look at it like this, dude. The average car, I just jotted down some notes on this. The average car does 15,000 kilometers annually, which is just shy of half a lap of the planet, okay? If the average revs during all of that car's operation are just 1,500, because in cities it's going to spend a fair bit of time just stopped or, you know, loping along, and if the average speed is 30 k's an hour, which is roughly equivalent to a horse and cart, okay, that's 500 hours of engine operation every year, which is 30,000 minutes and if you get the revs and multiply them by the minutes, that's 45 million revolutions of the crankshaft. And each one of those revolutions of the crankshaft drives the chain under load. It's continuously under load because even in a pissy little four-cylinder double overhead cam engine with 16 valves, each one of those valves has to be actuated 22.5 million times in a year, and the only way you can actuate the valve is by overcoming the spring tension, which is quite severe, designed to slam the valve shut pretty hard against the cam profile once the lobe goes over the top on the cam follower, right? So 
This is a lot of time under tension, even though it's only a year's worth of average driving, or in the case of our punter today, about 10 years of average driving, right? So that's, what, half a billion revolutions of the crankshaft. And yes, how dare the timing chain wear out, right? Chains got this reputation because of overhead valve engines. They were short and kind of understressed and they lasted forever and they didn't have to travel very far. And belts got implemented because of overhead valves, right? And then this is like a history lesson why you can't just lock your perceptions in, okay? Belts are lighter and there's never any significant stretch. So as they wear, as they get older, they don't affect the valve timing, right? They're made of rubber with a fibre reinforcement, okay? And they're generally driven by toothed rollers and the inside of the belt is toothed because it has to transmit so much force to overcome the valve spring tension. So the rubber is really flexible, but the fibres are not. And the fibres probably started out in the 60s, 50s and 60s when mass production of belts became a thing as fiberglass. Maybe they were even textiles early on. But anyway, the most common historic fibre is going to be glass fibre, right? But today they use things like aramid and carbon fibre and Kevlar to, re to resist lengthwise extension and never change the valve timing. They don't stretch, right? But in about the 1990s, the rubber changed. They changed the rubber, okay? So they typically used urethane or what was the other one? Uh, neoprene, just like the wetsuits, only probably a different version of that, right? So that had a few problems. It was not that resilient in a high temperature environment and it was also very susceptible to damage from oil or even coolant that got spilled on it for whatever reason. So if you had a leaky engine then the rubber was really susceptible but dude even if you didn't drive the rubber would go off over time and the belt needed to be changed right. So in the 90s they changed to this different kind of rubber which is called highly saturated nitrile so if you ever see a belt with hsn uh, letters on it it stands for that and it's the superior kind of rubber that makes the whole construction of the belt work and in particular hsn is much more long lived in a high temperature environment which is why back then in about the 1990s the typical service interval of a belt went from about 50,000 Ks on average to about 100 or 120, which it would be today for a belt. It's a direct consequence of technological advancement of belts, right? They don't weigh as much, so inertia is not as much of a factor. And it's also cheaper to make them, like it's expensive to make a chain, it's cheap to make a belt. And it's not just the belt and its construction and the chain and its construction. See. Chains need a lubrication system, and that means the front of the engine housing the chain needs to be enclosed and fluid sealed, right? So anytime you look at the front of an engine, and by that I mean the side of the engine with the pulleys on it, because most engines are transverse these days. If you look at the part of the engine where you can see the front end of the crankshaft coming out, just have a look at the timing housing and if it's plastic and not particularly well sealed guaranteed you're looking at a belt okay if it's die cast sort of aluminium and there's a gasket and it's much more 
significant from an engineering design and uh, implementation point of view, it's almost guaranteed to be a chain, right? And that's simply because you need to build in a lubrication system and it needs to hold oil in and you know all of these things the lubrication system the housing as a system and the construction of the chain add a bunch of cost to that vehicle off the bat you're paying it up front there's no getting out of it okay so to suggest that it's more expensive to have a belt because it has to be changed out every hundred thousand k's or something that's flat out nuts because you've already paid a heap more for a chain if you've got a chain but to be fair about chains Chains also improved over time, and they've lately, in a, the early part of the 2000s, there was a real increase in manufacturing technology, coatings, material like steel treatment, the better materials, better alloys, right? So chains have really improved over time as well, but there's also the balancing effect of the service interval and the need to keep costs down and all of this stuff, which is why there are good examples of belts and good examples of chains and properly shit implementations as well. So what I would suggest is that it really is not an issue of belt versus chain, which one is better. Very few things in mechanical design are that simple. It's more a matter of which one is better executed, right? It really is. And that's harder to know with a brand new engine. It's one of these reasons why I kind of always say, don't be a lab rat when there's a brand new engine. You can go out and buy it. That's great. If you want to be the new kid on the block, that's fine. I don't care. No one else is going to care either. But you are, in a sense, a lab rat running the mad experiment on the implementation of all of that new technology. I'm looking at you, Land Cruiser 300 hot V, V6 diesel owner. Won't that be interesting over time, right? So it really is about the deployment of these systems, the detail of the design, and how other factors like servicing, yes, impact the overall longevity, right? Because everything you do as an engineer designing anything impacts other aspects of its operation. And the, the failure of a chain in a, what's that engine, BMW? BMW's got a two-litre diesel engine that is chain-driven and prone to failure, which is called uh, N47, I think. Don't quote me. Please correct me in the comments if I'm wrong because I'm dredging that up from way down in the bowels in this case, all right? There's also this huge responsibility on you, the owner, to identify two things, one of which is the absolute imperative to service your car on time, right? Because the, the service interval is already stretched out, as elastically stretched as it can reliably be. And if you only ever drive to the shops and back, you do these short sort of three-kilometre drives, and you do that for a whole year, maybe it's a really, really good idea for you in particular to front up at the dealership and get your oil changed every six months instead of every 12, because the risk of contamination is much higher. It's very severe to operate your car like that from an impact on the oil perspective is what I'm saying. You also need to respect the service interval absolutely, right? There's none of this, oh, let's just go over by a couple of months because 12 months is a long time. 12 months is where most cars are at now. So if a chain or a belt breaks, 
it is going to catastrophically destroy most engines because they're what's called interference engines, and that means when the valves open, they open further than the piston comes up for top dead centre, so the piston's going to hit the valves. Never good. Always just scrap metal after that. So whatever it is, if there's a belt service interval or a chain service interval even, if your mechanic says the chain's getting pretty worn here, don't treat that like it doesn't matter. It matters. Spend the 1800 bucks because the cost of motoring, the cost of personal transportation is really quite low when you look at the value proposition. I know everyone thinks servicing is expensive and fuel's expensive and car ownership is expensive and depreciation is expensive. But if you go back in time and just look at mobility and freedom throughout human history, the car has delivered this incredible mainstream, ordinary person liberation, which has never been experienced at any other time in human history. Like before the car, the horse, significant downgrade, right? Motoring is really cheap in the context of the freedom and the liberation that it affords you. You can live 100 kilometres from your job if you want to, and you can drive there, if it's in a regional area, in roughly one hour. It's a one-hour commute. Try doing that in the olden days. Like, going 30Ks was a big deal. Going for, like, I live in Sydney, right? Going from Parramatta to the CBD with a horse and cart, that was a fairly big deal, okay? Going from Parramatta to the city in your car or from some 30K suburb to the centre of the city wherever you live, it's nothing. And I'd further suggest that 145,000 kilometres is a reasonable service life for just about any mechanical component because engines are much more highly stressed these days. They're much more complex and the complexity has delivered tangible advantages to you, right? Like fuel economy. You can have a carburetor and overhead valves, but for the same displacement, your engine's gonna make heaps more noxious emissions, deliver heaps less power, and consume heaps more fuel. So if you wanna go back to the olden days, you wanna look in the rose-colored rear vision mirror back at the past and say the good old days, they don't make them like they used to, and I'd agree with you, they don't. They make them heaps better now. Cars are heaps better today. So our punter, and potentially you, have done four or five laps of the planet in your car, and occasionally it needs more than routine maintenance. And therefore, I'd suggest that this is still an example of engineers doing a good job delivering a tangible benefit to you, even though I admit that nobody really enjoys spending 1850 bucks on maintenance that they just really weren't expecting to do today.